Hi, I'm Margie, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I hope you're all well. Thank you so much for the lovely reviews you've been leaving this week. You lot are the best. And those reviews, I know people bang on about it a lot, but those five-star ratings and subscribing to the podcast really does boost it in the rankings and it really does help me out. So thank you. And so nice to see so many of you on Instagram. So fun. You can find me at Margie Nomura. So this week... I met with a woman whose career I have admired for a very long time. She's a food hero of mine, and I'm sure of many others. She also turned out to be absolutely lovely, and I had the nicest time chatting to her. So I hope you'll enjoy this interview wherever you might be. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Donna Hay. Donna is a world-famous food publishing phenomenon and most definitely the undisputed queen of cookery in Australia. She has published 27 cookery books which have sold more than 6 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 10 different languages. Her TV shows have been broadcast in more than 14 countries. She launched her own magazine to critical acclaim which ran for 17 years and 100 issues. It's safe to say with her easy-to-follow and delicious recipes, simply prepared and beautifully photographed, Donna has inspired a whole new generation of cooks. I found a quote that said, At the age of eight, Donna Hay skipped into a kitchen, picked up a mixing bowl and never looked back. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. <laughs> what a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. And my goodness, how much have you achieved? I know that you say you don't like to look ahead too much and you prefer to live in the moment, but I wondered, is it the same for looking back and seeing how far you've come? Yes, I'm absolutely terrible at looking back. Really? Really bad. Really, really bad. And I forget a lot of it and I need to be reminded. <laughs> so quite good to have an introduction like that. It is. Yes, exactly. So from everything I've read, school holidays spent at your grandparents were formative in driving your passion for food. So let's talk a little bit more about that and talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I don't know if it, it's not really a dish. It's okay. just a very simple recipe. Yeah, perfect. Um, but I, I have a few crazy ones from my childhood, having the privilege of having a mother who let me cook when I was really young. And also, I think when the, you're the youngest of three girls, you get away with it a lot more. What do you think? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Definitely. Although I was a very good girl. Of course. Well, there's two things that remind me of my childhood is um, lamb and curd. And I remember it because for a couple of reasons that I remember cooking it with my grandmother, but I remember right down the bottom of her refrigerator on the right-hand side on the bottom shelf. There was always jars of it stacked there oh. just in case she ever ran. I don't know why. It was just that thing. And when it ran low, it was almost like a panic in the house, you know, like there was more, always more on the double boiler. And my mum would sometimes make it, but I think she would often steal a jar from my grandmother's fridge instead. But it was just that thing. I still have the visual of 
Um, I still have my mother's double boiler and my grandmother's double boiler oh. as well. My mother is one of those non-hoarder people that okay. throws everything out. She <laughs> would be really quick. So I got hers. And I luckily have my grandmother's. So I don't know if it's that combination that keeps reminding me of, of that time in my childhood, but I definitely remember that even the, the shelf in the fridge, and I have a really sketchy memory, like so bad, <laughs> that it's, it, that is one thing. And the other thing that I remember vividly is always having at family get-togethers chocolate caramel slice. Ooh. Yes, always. Oh. And whenever I see it, it kind of takes me back to my childhood because it was the reoccurring kind of sweet that was taken to picnics and lots of outdoor things. You know, living in Australia, often family gatherings aren't at someone's house. They're at a big park near mm. a river or, you know, it was kind of the thing that we used to do with all of my cousins. So chocolate caramel slice just always appeared. Oh, yeah. Sometimes left in the sun too long and the chocolate had melted slightly. Even or, better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that with a shortbread base? Yes, yes. Um, that traditional, yeah. And the lemons for the lemon curd. It sounded like your grandmother had the most amazing fruit garden. Were they from... Were they have been from the garden yes they must have been from the garden the lemon tree was at the end and the vegetable garden was enormous it was i'm sure it was i don't know if it's my childhood delusions of how big and small things are you know yeah. when you're little you kind of get things out of proportion but the vegetable garden to me seemed bigger than their house god how amazing if it was yeah and then she had a strawberry patch but because she was she was so guarded against the birds taking her strawberries. It was kind of, it was kind of encased in like mesh wire with a big open <laughs> lid, flip lid. So you had to open all the lids and hold them up with wooden stakes, and then kind of dive in there and pick all the strawberries. Well, that sounds very that sensible. Was very yeah. serious. Stop <laughs> not letting the birds get your strawberries. You say that your mother didn't really enjoy cooking the daily meal, and she was a really busy working mum, working really long hours as a nurse. But in many ways, that was quite an important lesson to learn, that not everyone loves cooking and that lots of people are time poor. Would you say that's true? Yes. And I think also looking back, when she was cooking dinner for a young family, it, it was pretty boring as well, the repertoire that was around. I'm going to quote you now, because I, I read that you said she cooked a lot of tasteless wholemeal pastas <gasps> and a lot I'm of them. I'm not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> she gets really upset with me. <laughs> no, so two things happened in my childhood that kind of springboarded me into the kitchen is that my mother just, she just doesn't, ha like she can draw and paint and is really super creative. She's a great gardener, always had beautiful herbs and vegetables in the garden as well. Not as big as my grandparents, but she's really creative. And, and she's really talented. So it's not like, it's not her enjoyment mm. cooking. It's not like mine where I actually have no trouble going home every night and putting something together. And I can just do it from ingredients in the fridge. She's kind of doesn't have that thing. Mm. You know, she doesn't love it. And that's fine. And I, I did learn from an early age that it actually is fine. You can't make someone love something. So it's like trying to make someone love knitting, I guess, yeah. or washing, you know, or other general household chores. And it was boring what she had to choose from, you know, steak and three veg when I was growing up. But then the other thing was that she adopted this really healthy lifestyle thing. Really, like talk about an early adopter. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. Because Australia has always been sort of quite ahead of the curve on that front. Yes. Yeah. And she was one of the early ones. Oh, yeah. She went early. She definitely went early. <laughs> but she did that thing where she swapped out like normal pasta for, you know, soy pasta and really stodgy wholemeal pasta. And back then it was pretty 
It's not what it is today. Yeah, it was tough going. It was tough going. <laughs> but, you know, she thought she was doing the right thing by herself and by her family and nourishing them. But, yeah, it was pretty. Um, I was the kid in the schoolyard that had the really, really heavy seeded bread. <laughs> no one else had that bread. No. All you want is white sliced bread. Oh, you age. just want to fit in at yeah. that age, don't you? You don't want to have the yeah. freaky sandwich with the grated carrot and the grated beetroot and the cottage cheese and, yeah, crazy stuff. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Am I allowed to have two? You I are. don't want to be greedy. No, I'm very um Because generous. I remember too vividly that my mother must have at some time, I don't know if it was my sister's or whether she bought it for me, but I had this book called Let's Cook and it was all illustrated. And unfortunately, as you do as small child, I decided that I would make my mother breakfast in bed on a Sunday because she used to work some shift works as a nurse. And so I thought, well, that would be a really nice thing. Unfortunately, I chose the recipe and cooked the recipe as per the recipe said in the book, like a very well-behaved child that I was. What was it? Don't gag. It's not my fault. I'm just (laughs) prefacing this. What are you going to say? It's orange omelette. Oh. It was an omelette made with orange juice <laughs> whipped with the eggs. I'm sorry, what? It was in a book. I know. Was this like a Rachel from Friends moment where you got two of the pages like stuck I don't together? Think and- so. <laughs> I really don't. How interesting. And yeah. was it as delicious as it sounds? She faked it that it was. <laughs> I don't think I ever ate it. I think I just made it for her. Like that only a mother could. She yes. pretended. <laughs> I think I did it quite a few times. It was in the book. You know, at that point in my young career it's age six or whatever i might have been i thought that the book knew best well yeah that's an easy mistake to make you know (laughs) the title and but then i remember my first proud moment when i made for my dad's birthday steak diane Ooh, yeah how old would you have been then i think i would have been around the eight or nine mark still pretty young but i do remember it vividly did he love it of course he did. <laughs> but I doubt that I did it. Like, you know, you're supposed to really quickly pan fry quite thin steak and then garlic and Worcestershire sauce. Mm, I so, yeah. yeah. And cre- yes, <laughs> I know. You can see where my illustrious career came yeah, from. Yeah, but you were so young. I, that's very impressive. Yes. And your career as a food writer and stylist began when you were just 19. You'd soon won an award for a beer advert shot with the painterly technique of photographic transfers. And then your first book came out in 95 using the same technique shot with the photographer Quentin Bacon. And in a way, it was this project that would ultimately be a sort of really career-defining moment for you, wouldn't it? It was. I know what you're getting to. That book was shot on um, 10 by 8 Polo transfer, which is really unusual. 10 by 8 cameras are enormous and there wasn't really many of them left around. So finish that book. We, It's a hard process to explain, but every time you take a Polo, you press it onto art paper and you roll the image and transfer the chemical on a Polaroid that normally would develop on the paper. So before it develops. Before it develops. You pull it off and you put it on wet art paper and you roll it and you've got to roll it. I think we had it down to a real art, like two minutes, 15 seconds or something bizarre. You roll it, roll it, and then you peel it off. So the chemicals that would have developed onto the normal kind of um, shiny Polaroid paper had developed like a beautiful master's watercolor onto art paper. So 
some of them worked, some of them didn't. It was quite a painstaking little operation. And then at the end, if you had six or eight of the one image, we'd put them on the studio floor and we'd choose which ones were the nicest because some of the um, emulsion of the developing Polaroid stuff would stick and become a little bit funny. Anyway, it was a process. So sitting on the floor, I had lots of, um, lots of the art paper on the floor of the studio and this woman walked in and she was quite unusual. She had a really sharp bob haircut and quite, quite unusually dressed, looked a bit fashiony. <laughs> and yeah, she, little did I know she was scoping me out for the food editor's role at Marie Claire magazine. And being a foodie, I had no idea what Marie Claire was. It was just, it hadn't started in Australia yet. It was a launch from new. So that's yeah. amazing. So almost like a chance encounter. She just spotted you doing something sort of she was innovative. renting our rental studio next door. Oh, she my walked goodness. past and I she was that. a real food. Yeah, just by chance. And you were just 25. Yeah. So young. Mm. You became the food editor of the soon to be Marie Claire, which yes. is just amazing. And I really like what you say of that time, looking back on that particular book. I'm going to quote from you now. Oh, goodness. So you say that a little drive, a dash of perfectionism and a willingness to roll up your sleeves never goes unnoticed. And I thought that was really lovely that you have an actual physical object that symbolizes those life lessons for you. Yes. Delving into my past, which I cannot, which I struggle to remember (laughs) at the best of times. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it's not many jobs in, not many great jobs in food. I didn't think back then. So I just thought that I really needed to, to do my best and to be individual. And to be honest, I just thought I, I really couldn't style either in that way with all the napkin rings and things. I found it so confusing. I didn't <laughs> know where to start. So I thought, oh, I'd really like to be a food stylist, but I'm just not cut out to, to do all that and then do the food as well. So really was kind of wondering if I should look elsewhere. I was actually going to take up photography and move and jump to the other side. Oh, so interesting. Let's pause there and talk about the third Desert Island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. That is so, so difficult. I know. I'm sorry. It's really cruel. (laughs) It's really cruel. Yeah. For me, it's so hard because... Food is not just about the food in front of you and you're in a room on your own. For me, it's more the location and the good times that you have with your friends, which is why I will always cook on a Sunday and have my friends over to lunch because I just love laughing and great times with my friends. So I'm just, I'm, I don't want to be greedy, but I think I have two again. Okay, that's fine. I have that's a quick one and a long one. Lucky well, us. Well, the first one would be when I was really young and it was still back in the days, I'm sure of maybe when I, I'm sure I was at Marie Claire still, but of course, Marie Claire was just a freelance job because you only had a couple of pages in a monthly magazine. So I had lots of time to do lots of other things, which was fantastic. I went to this, I got, must have been invited by the Tourism Association. I went to King Island, which has got a famous dairy okay. um, on the island and it's quite remote. You've got to get like planes and small planes and and it's really windy and windswept. It's a bit looks a bit more like Wales, I think, if I'd been there. Okay. And it does Australia. You know, it's colder down the bottom of Australia. It's really windswept and really lush, lots of rainfall. But the produce is amazing because it is um it's so remote. And people just that live on this island, they just exist kind of going back to the mainland occasionally, I guess. But really beautiful beef and gorgeous, really quite pure strain of bees as well. Mm. So it's amazing little happening of food everywhere. 
And I went there and I got up. I remember when we, the first day we were working there, I was with a photographer. We went out on a crayfishing boat and um, helped them pull up the crayfishing pots and then they gave us crayfish at the end. Oh, I think wow. we were up at like 3.30. But they were beautiful. You know, I just think that that shell and the color and even from uncooked to cooked, so pretty, just so, so beautiful. So the fishermen gave us some crayfish and part of our adventure was just going everywhere around the island, meeting the cheesemakers then and we went to the honey people. And so we, at the end of the day, I had all of this produce the beautiful thing is that we started a fire down on the beach, beautiful windswept beach, and they use for chairs salt bushes, which kind of are like bean bags. Okay. I think that these spiky bushes are going to really hurt you when you sit down, but you sink into them like a bean bag. Oh my goodness. It sounds like a dream world. It is. I feel like I've made it up, but I can't have. Anyway, we just found a little bit of fencing wire and made a barbecue on the beach and I cooked the crayfish but I cooked them with the beautiful King Island butter and part of it is the romance of being there but the freshness and the simplicity of the produce was just so amazing and we'd picked herbs along the roadside that I just sprinkled on the lobsters and well the crayfish and then I'd made ice cream out of the cream from the cows that we visit like it was just the most perfect dinner yeah that sounds like perfection yeah and I love being by the ocean and the wind swept it was beautiful we were all rugged up eating this fresh fresh lobster and I just yeah it's amazing yeah that sounds incredible you say of that time you were working with very glamorous people the world of photography and styling and that you felt like in your words the daggy one, because home cooking was so out of fashion and it was all restaurants and takeaways. You describe yourself championing home cooking and it made you feel like, a, again, in in your words, um, dowdy Mrs. Doubtfire, which I know could not be further from the truth, you being impossibly glamorous. But what you were doing was sort of going against the tide of food trends at the time, wasn't it? Did it feel very much like that? Yeah, it really did. It did. We were my, all of my friends from Vogue fashion assistants to interiors assistants, we were all coming up the ranks at the same time. You know, it, w- it was all about the latest restaurant or the latest little bar of Chinese, you know, dumpling bars and things like that. So it felt, I, I felt quite out of place. And, I, you know, I'd been to those futuristic kind of symposium <laughs> speaking talks that you're supposed to go to and learn all this stuff that's going to propel you into the future. And I thought, I remember really clearly this guy getting up and saying, well, I'm an architect and I'm like amazing. And whoever he was, so futuristically amazing. And we will be building apartments next year that will just have no kitchen, but like a cupboard and behind it will be a sink and a microwave. No. And a bar fridge. And I was horrified. And I remember him saying, and cooking will become a pastime like macrame. Oh my goodness, he actually said that. Yes, he did. And what was the general reaction? Was everyone horrified? I I don't know, because I think I was horrified. I don't know if I noticed anything for a week afterwards. I was just, I was absolutely horrified. I was horrified because my mother was so healthy and she instilled in me the importance of fresh food and looking after yourself and that cooking was like learning how to clean your teeth or yeah. look after yourself. You know, it was that kind of life skill. But then on the other hand, I had so many of my friends calling and saying, oh, you know that roast chicken you made the other night? I've bought a chicken. How do I do it? 
So I think I was lucky with the groundswell of DIY programs on television that also architecture changed. It didn't change the way that guy said. It changed to open plan kitchens and, you know, that spilt into living areas, that spilt onto backyards, that barbecuing and all these things then started to change. And so this swept up kind of TV programs of build your own doghouse to improve your home just filled our vision. And then with that came people really becoming house proud and then having these amazing open plan kitchens that were the jewel or the heart of their home where people congregated, where it was now cool and you needed to have a cooking repertoire. You know, even guys had to have some sort of entertaining repertoire to to kind of spar with their mates about how long did they cook that slow roasted pork whatever for well I did mine for eight hours well mine was 12 and (laughs) mine was seven days and so I was lucky in this groundswell of my career that that did tip over and change yeah what an exciting um, time it was great because you also said something else really interesting that of that time when you and all your friends had moved out of home and started these glamorous jobs no one really knew how to cook because no one had spent time in the kitchens because as you say your generation was the first generation to have dual working parents absolutely which I thought was so interesting what an interesting consequence of equality yes it was and it didn't occur to me until much later on why weren't they taught how to cook and then I thought oh that's right their mums weren't at home and when their mums were at home they were probably exhausted yeah of course (laughs) yeah so a lot of my friends have really funny names for slow cookers like the stringy meatball because everything that came out of it was stringy you meet and so that you know their mothers then did things like put the slow cooker on in the morning and and I remember my friends saying to me how disheartened they felt when they came through the door after school and they could already smell the the stringy meat cooker was on (laughs) but I had these friends that were really interested in knowing how to cook so it did as you probably know because you've been amazing at your research (laughs) I I need a copy um is that I was just inundated with uh, with requests of how to cook and and really simple things. And, you know, I think I was really lucky being a foodie in Sydney and I really feel fortunate that I must feel like I cheated in a way. No. I do. I mean, any successful person, there is an element of being in the right place at the right time. But it's but definitely the, um, not cheating. I really do feel like <laughs> I cheated because the, the quality of the produce has always been amazing. The freshness of the herbs as a stylist has been amazing. Our herbs don't come in plastic packets, mm. clipped shots. They come like big bouquets of flowers. They're oh. amazing. Plus the groundswell of immigrants having such a young country, you know, they were Thai, Vietnam, all those flavors we got to borrow from. They were never, there was never rules. You know, I was never taught um, French cookery and there was no variations or English cookery and that was it. It was always, it's just the Australian way is just so much more relaxed and casual and rule breaking and pushing boundaries. I do feel like I cheated. Oh, I you're felt- just making it sound like the coolest place to live. Uh- <laughs> it is. <laughs> Let's just pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. And that is your favorite sandwich. Oh, I have a lot of favorite sandwiches. Is that bad? No. Well, if I feel really unwell, and I'm I'm going to tell you this, I've never told anyone before. Okay. If I feel really unwell, like as in really tired and shattered and drained, I love a toasted cheese and pineapple sandwich. Oh, hello. Sorry, a cheese and pineapple. Yeah, and I'm happy for the 
can, like a Hawaiian pizza, but without the Hawaii. Okay. <laughs> okay. We heard it here first. This is a worldwide exclusive. I haven't had one for years and now I'm absolutely craving today's one. Today's the day. Today could be the day. <laughs> but I really love a really big Australian kind of salad sandwich. So I'm happy to have my mum's seeded bread. Yes. Lots of grated beetroot, grated carrot, crunchy iceberg lettuce, grated cheese, like lots and lots of salad and really ripe tomato. Yeah, almost so big that you have to squish it to yeah, get it in. Like yeah, cool stock. But as long as it hasn't been in my school bag okay. <laughs> for a couple of hours first because that just visual just popped into my head. But yeah, it's a different thing yeah, now we're growing we're up. A really, really school. great salad sandwich. Even my mum would have put some hummus on it. She was so ahead mm, of her time. Yeah, she really was. Oh, crazy. An innovator. Yeah. So then came Donahay, the magazine, which you ran for 17 years and 100 issues. And to go back to the beginning, I read something that said at the age of 30, you went to Europe to write for American magazines and you managed to get an interview to work for Martha Stewart. But that at that time, you got the call from News Corp asking you to start a magazine. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I was traveling around and um, actually Martha, her people sent me an email and I went and did some TV with her. I must have had a new book out. And then I did this amazing TV segment with her up at her TV studios that she had in Connecticut. I think upset. Yeah, and they were amazing. And I, just the whole thing was amazing. And her prop room was my, I was just bl- totally blown away. And then she asked me to come and visit her in her New York offices. So I turned up and she said, look, I'd really love you to come and join my team. I don't just don't know where I put you yet. And, you know, really love if you thought about relocating. And, you know, she sort of started the conversation. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll have a think about it. And I met some of her team and I guess what I always do is I kind of stop and reassess things and I always like to be really true to myself. And when I looked around New York and I just, I wasn't sure I could be as creative as I wanted to be in that city. That's interesting. Yeah, it didn't feel like my creative home. It felt like lots of other things like a party town and a shopping town and all sorts of other great things. But I thought I would struggle to do what I thought I would need to do in that team. And it, yeah, I just... And then you got the call asking you to start your own magazine. Yes, so luckily... Amazing. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And isn't it funny how life twists and turns? Because now you're as big a household name as Martha Stewart, which may never have happened if you'd taken that job. No, I know. It's crazy the way life takes you on a little path. And I've heard you talk about those early days of the magazine. And I mean, it sounded tough. You say you had very little budget. You wrote every single recipe, styled every recipe. You describe it as a runaway train. Obviously, it was a dream come true to be given your own magazine. And I think you had eight full-time staff at the time. But what were those early days like? Terrifying. Were they? (laughs) Yeah, terrifying. As a perfectionist, which you need to be to write recipes, so I've stopped apologizing for that. And I think... When you're when you're one of your drivers is fear of failure, it, it, you put a lot of pressure on yourself for everything to be perfect. Yes, and for everything to be as good as it can be. And then the next magazine comes; it has to be better than the last one. It has to be even better and bigger, and and that just becomes quite overwhelming. And you just need, you know, in those days, I just had my head down. I didn't go out. I didn't socialize. Hardly saw my friends unless they came over for dinner. I guess also you you had your name on the magazine, so it was, you know. Oh, what a stupid idea. (laughs) It wasn't meant to be called that. 
I have all the mock-ups that none of them have my name on them. Oh, really? No, they were meant to be called Seasons and all different things that magazine was called. And right at the 11th hour before we went to print, the woman who was running the magazine division for News Corp said, I really think it should have your name on it. And I just remember being so exhausted from finishing the first issue. I was whatever. like, whatever, I don't <laughs> really care. And I didn't think about it. And then when I saw it, I thought, oh, no, that's such a horrible thing. Look at your name there. That's so uppity. Like, why... Why did you let that happen? It just seemed so unimportant to me. I was working on the, the cover, like the visual for the cover, but I thought, oh, my goodness, what sort of person calls a magazine after themselves? That's <laughs> revolting. And I remember being in a taxi going past a bus stop where they put the big posters up and seeing it and just being horrified and thinking, what have you done? Really? Yes. Why would you call it your own name? That's revolting. There wasn't any sort of... You I know, was so wow. shy. No. My, my name is I am lights. actually really shy. Oh, really? Yes, I had to learn not to be. But okay. people used to think that I may, might have been really standoffish and quite rude, but I was just shy. so shy. <laughs> and so for me, it was horrifying. I remember almost being in tears just thinking, I love the image. And it was, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. I had not thought that through. Yeah, I guess it is an extra layer of stress and responsibility the moment your actual name is on it. Yeah, and I wanted it to be... You know, I was always focused on the recipes and the food, not yeah. about myself. Yeah, but Donna, look how it's turned out. Everything's all oh right. <laughs> Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish that you eat the most often. The dish I eat the most often would have to be broccoli salad. Ooh, talk to me about it. I think because of what my mother installed in me, instilled in me, is that I, I really like to fuel with green vegetables especially during the week. But I sort of fall back to some sort of variation on a broccoli salad. Okay, and what's your favourite? I buy this smoked trout fillet. This young girl has this company that does like really beautiful smoked trout fillet, but it's a big chunky piece of ocean trout. quite moist. And I sort of have that in the fridge as my standby kind of out of time ingredient yeah my sons love it as well so it's kind of that thing that's really it's really great for you but it's so super tasty so i end up the char grilling broccoli on the barbecue and then putting it with the ocean trout and so i'm i'm very big on the char grilled broccoli variation on a salad yeah that sounds like a very good go-to dish yeah let's talk about the new book modern baking because wow it's incredible the tagline is cakes cookies and everything in between and you really mean that because it's 400 pages i mean the only baking book anyone's ever going to need isn't it (laughs) (laughs) well it doesn't have the classics in there so that's why i had to call it modern baking okay because i was worried that people pick up baking books and they're going to go well where is her chocolate chip cookie recipe where yeah. is her i mean if anyone if that was their first thought when they picked it up then yeah. <laughs> i'd be surprised but yes so i wanted to do a book that was for all sorts of people and all sorts of occasions because i love to bake and i find it quite indulgent and magical at the same time and i remember being a child And my dad had built us a cubby house, a playhouse in the backyard. And we had a tin tea set. So I had two older sisters and we would play tea parties. And so we would put even sand in the teapot or whatever. Or if we would go and get some water out of the backyard tap. And, you know, we were always playing some sort of party. So then when you're allowed as a young child to go, a young girl to go into the kitchen and actually tea parties come to life. 
the real stuff. And then you just put in a mixer egg whites and sugar and this amazing glossy foam happens. You know, all of that to me was just so magical. Yeah. I was so addicted to it. And so baking for me, not only do you have to find the time to do it, it's that it's just always so beautiful and so magical. And I think it does take me back to my childhood. Completely. So in saying that, I did have to divide every chapter into three because I think there's three different times then you bake something super indulgent. Yum, yum, friends are coming over at someone's birthday, we're going to celebrate, or I'm just going to make this because it's delicious. And then the other times, which is the quick fix little section in each chapter is I've got people coming over, which is what I do, and I'm out of time. And now I've invited 17 people. I thought I invited seven, which is my (laughs) other fault. Or people that are scared of baking as well, novice bakers that want to try something. So the quick fix section, I think, is genius for lots of those little equations. And then my other passion, thanks to my mother, fresh and light, which I know has been a real thing, giving up this and that and swapping things out. But because I have a food science background, I don't just swap in and out buckwheat flour for normal flour or throw a bit of coconut sugar in. You know, those ingredients do a lot to baking, sometimes quite disastrously ghastly. Yes. So you, <laughs> it can go horribly wrong. It can go horribly wrong. And you end up eating something that makes you feel like you're on some bizarre diet and that you're actually missing out on other really yummy things. Yeah. So when I look at those recipes, those ingredients have to play a role and you have to look at them for what they are. Some of them have more protein. Some of them have a flavor profile that's really earthy or nutty. And you need to work with that. You can't just pretend that that undertone flavor is in there and it's all fine yeah you need to work it in properly so I'm quite passionate about that yeah I love that because you're so right there are so many things that are sort of in inverted commas healthy and you taste them and they taste gross so yeah you'd much rather have the unhealthy version you'd but much you're... rather have half a slice of the unhealthy version and enjoy yourself yeah. And you feel so cheated. Yeah, your your lighter versions, they don't feel like that at all. And I guess it's like you say, it's because you're coming at it from this sort of scientific. Yeah, and we're not giving up sugar and we're not giving up anything. No. We're just adding in a few more whole grains and, you know, really, and things that are good for you that make your skin shine or, you know, make you healthy from the inside. I love that. So it's sort of adding stuff in rather than taking anything away. Yes, yes, yes. Um, And releasing the book worldwide at the same time. Oh my goodness. Why have I not done that before? That's an epic challenge, but it feels very new and exciting. But I, I suppose your audience is so global now, it kind of made sense to do it all in one go. I mean, it really did have to happen. And I think we were just answering so many confused questions on social media of where is this book? Why is it not in Dutch? Why is this not book, not in German? Uh, Yeah, it was creating. And I was also traveling, doing the publicity for last year's book. And I think it looked like I didn't know what I was talking about because I'd have to reread the entire book. But I was on a new book at home releasing that. So it was quite, my head was quite full. Yeah, better to do very intensive sort of world tour, but be talking about the same book. Absolutely. I know all about this baking book. I could do something right now. (laughs) I know Sunday lunches are a really big deal in your house. So let's talk about the sixth desert island dish because that's your go-to dinner party dish i like to please people when they come to my house okay so i often cook things that are not my favorites but my friends favorites very generous i know i yeah yeah, i love sunday feels like no other day of the week even when you're out on the street sunday just has that vibe that cannot be duplicated i love sunday i often 
as well we'll throw in some lamb shoulder with lots of herbs and lemon and garlic and things and throw it in the oven and take off for a run and a swim and let the whole oven thing do all the work for me otherwise you know if it's high summer we're always barbecuing because it is so hot so i'll marinate like some whole chickens that i'll just cut in half and butterfly and just do really lovely chili jams and things like that because i think that's where we're really lucky that all those asian flavors just scream summer to me lemongrass and lime leaves and chili jams and things like that i'm a big share plate because i think that is sunday as well that you put out you know a couple of salads and some roasted vegetables i love a big salad you know, I'm I'm all for a nice crunchy iceberg lettuce leaf, but I also do love a big salad that has roasted vegetables in it or, you know, a lovely crunchy pumpkin seeds and crunch and yum. Yum. Yeah. And would, what would you typically make for pudding on one of these days? Well, that's usually dictated to by my quite bossy friends. Okay. <laughs> What's their favorite? Um, are they often a crisp pavlova? I don't know. Yeah, a classic. And I also think they know they're going to have half a shot at me making it because I do make it late on Saturday night <laughs> and leave it in the oven because of the humidity. Oh, yeah, of course. Of the downside of... of oh, yeah, I hadn't even over. thought about that. Mm, you have to cook it and leave it in the oven to dry out. Otherwise, I have um, an ice cream machine that you'll like this story, that I saved up every single penny to buy when I was a food stylist assistant. Oh. And I remember being so short on money for a couple of weeks afterwards I really needed an, an ice cream machine because, you know, as a food stylist, assistant, yeah, you have to have all the gear. Yeah. <laughs> and so I still have it. It That's sounds like nice. an aircraft landing. So you, <laughs> Perfect. Yes. So you said earlier that your mom is the opposite of a hoarder and you seem to have taken quite a few of her bits and pieces. Are you a hoarder? No, definitely <laughs> not. No, no. I'm really, I actually have to stop myself from throwing things out like she does. Okay. Yes, I really do. It. I do regret it. And my prop room is like that. I grab things and I go, oh, we haven't used this in years. And then I have to go yeah. think about that. The moment you've thrown it out, oh, you I have really want thinking it. feeling. Like, no, I really want it. Yeah, I'm terrible like that so I often whip up like even just a frozen yogurt or a sorbet or a really nice dark chocolate sorbet and then do something creamy next to it as well so the the old trusty ice cream machine often gets a whirl out god Sunday sound amazing at you're yours. welcome anytime <laughs> thank you we have a cookbook corner on desert island dishes where I want to know what your most treasured cookbook is oh, oh I'm gonna have to tell you a really sad story okay this kind of makes tears well in my eyes, oh, even no, to this day. I know. Well, I had all of my grandmother's cookbooks and my mum's cookbooks. And you know when your grand well, my grandmother had chopped things out of newspapers and things and stuck them all in books. I yeah. had all those and I had all of her handwritten books. And we were having a big office cleanup and I decided I was taking them home because they'd been photographed in the magazine and stuff and I had all my mum's books in there. And there was not a very big box. I decided to take it all home and I had a temp office manager at the t- office PA and she gave it she threw it in the charity no no she didn't mm, they're all gone and I searched and searched and searched and I I'm um, yeah I cried and cried and cried and I couldn't tell my mother for years oh, and years Donna. and years I couldn't I couldn't even tell my sisters I knew I'd be in oh, no. such big trouble which I was oh but yeah it was the thing that kind of really broke me yeah had you managed like you say there were some photographs in the magazine like had you taken a little enough bit. 
And I did have a couple of little books at home, but not the ones that I loved. Yeah. Yeah, it was my real breaking point. It was the bit that really got me. Yeah, those those are the most treasured possessions, aren't they? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry, sad story. Let's go to something (laughs) happy, quick. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I'm quite indecisive on things like this. You can have a feast. Really? You know what I was scared of? I'd be scared that I would be so indecisive that someone would say, okay, it's time to go now. And I would just be eating crackers out of my cracker drawer <laughs> going, hold on, hold on. They go, no, sorry, that's it. I'd end up with a couple of dry crackers, maybe a square of chocolate. And I, yeah, that's not the dream. No, I know, but I fear this. I'm going to give you plenty of time. Okay. So that won't have plenty of time. I would start, oh, this is going to sound terrible. You know, there's these Really beautiful little crustaceans, but they have a really horrible name. Um, they're called Morton Bay bugs. Or okay. Oh, yeah. I've heard of them. Yeah. Or another type of bug. Why can I not think of it? And they're the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life, which is quite strange for me being um, a stylist and yeah. only liking pretty things, <laughs> that I like these creatures that they just have tail meat that is so super sweet and tender. It's like a it's like the most amazing crayfish you've ever eaten. But I always cook it on holidays. And on my holidays, my friends often drop by and join us. And I have lots of crazy, eclectic holidays. It's where I would usually hire a big house on the coast and my friends would drop by. And so they always ask me to make this dish on holiday. So it reminds me of this beautiful summer and the sand and the ocean. And, and then my great friends and holidays and holidays I love. And it is these bug tails, but with you pound up lemongrass and kaffir lime leaves in butter and you just simply grill them really hot. But they're so delicate and delicious. A really cold glass of beautiful shabli would be perfect. So yeah. I think I'd start there okay. with my two great friends, James and David as well, because that, that's their dishes. If they had to choose something that I would make for them, that's what they would choose. And then I think, I, you know what, I'd have to go back to a bit of char-grilled broccoli. Is that terrible? No, it's not terrible at all. Before I got cast off, just in yeah, case I got scurvy time. or something. I don't know. What am I going to get? Some sort of <laughs> ancient disease yeah. of scurvy. Or yeah, and I'll uh, make you nice and something strong. Something first fleetish. That's what us convicts think about, don't we? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and would you have a pudding? Yes, I'd have many a pudding. Okay. I think I would be more focused on the pudding. The pudding table. Yes. And I'd just have a spoonful of each, which my mother would hate because it'd be so wasteful. Oh, no, don't worry. Someone else will be Someone there. Someone else eat can the eat it all. Yeah. yeah. So I would have a little slice of, a couple of slices, little spoonfuls of pavlova with maybe lemon curd and, and fresh passion fruit and raspberries and that. And then I'd have a really beautiful lemon tart as well. Really super, super tangy, but with a really paper thin pastry crust, not too much pastry. And then I'd have a selection of sorbets and ice creams. I love icy things. And then I like coffee granita, but with a spoonful of vanilla whipped cream on the top. So you get the cream and the crunch of the granita as well, the icy and the creamy combination. Um, And then I keep going. I might even go sort of a spoonful of really decadent chocolate cake with some fresh raspberries as well. Yeah, there would be dessert table for days. I like the sound of this very much. Yes. And champagne, (laughs) lovely rosé champagne. The dream. Mm, Amazing. Donna, those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Now, that's the kind of best dish you've ever eaten that you just never forget. That sounded completely wonderful. And there were so many delicious goodies in that one. 
maybe minus the orange omelette and possibly the cheese and pineapple sandwich. (laughs) But here ends another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. If you're listening and haven't yet left a review, now's your chance. It really is quick to do. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to go to the website desertislanddishes.co for the full list of episodes plus loads of recipes I've created to go with each episode. And it's brand new. So do head over and have a look because it's taken me an age. (laughs) Come and say hi on Instagram at Margie Nomura. And other than that, I will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.